Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. From the very first festival in 1990, the oldest recording in our archive, a talk by writer and civil rights activist Will Campbell. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Roy Anker, Emeritus Professor of English at Calvin. Today's episode is a recording from the very first festival in 1990, and it features Will Campbell. Campbell, a Baptist minister, is perhaps best known for his involvement in the civil rights movement, first through the National Council of Churches, and then through the Committee of Southern Churchmen, through which he published Catalogite, the New Testament Greek for Be Reconciled. He was on the front lines of integration efforts, one of the four people who escorted the black students into integrated Little Rock public schools. The only white person president at the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with Martin Luther King, and a marcher with King in Birmingham and Selma. His activism led him as well to protest other issues, such as Vietnam and the death penalty. Campbell was the author of numerous works, and his memoir, Brother to a Dragonfly, was a National Book Award finalist in 1978. He was also a pop culture icon, the inspiration for the character Will Be Done in the cartoon Kudzu. In 2000, President Bill Clinton awarded Campbell the National Humanities Medal. He passed away in 2013. From 1990, here's Will Campbell in a speech called Writing as Subversion. missing, <laughs> <laughs> wait for the car, 
I don't think he ever said which part. <laughs> Some part of the airplane. And we got on the runway, and he announced that a computer cable in Cleveland had been cut in two. And uh, that would delay us for some time. Uh, and since that had happened, I was pleased that it was going to delay us because I assumed that those computers have something to do with where you're going and whether or not you get there at all. But when he said the cable had been cut in two, it sounded like such a willful act that it reminded me of my subject in a tempted to change the subject, but since I had given some modest amount of thought to it, I thought maybe we would continue it. So it's a very difficult thing, any kind of subversion. We're almost in what I refer to as the technological concentration camp, where even here you in the guest house you have a little card that you push across to get in the door. And uh, I'm told that that not only lets you in, but it records the, the person who had this, who is entering the building, and at what time they enter. <laughs> and I know there, there have been a lot of changes made, even since uh, I decided on this subject, which makes it a, a bit more intimidating to me, to come to a, a College, which I gather is uh, sort of a hotbed of some form of Calvinism, and <laughs> here a recently communist country president quoted at length is some, somewhat surprising, or it would have been a few months ago. So there have been a lot of changes, all of which I think makes subversion, maybe puts it only in the of, of the writer, I, I don't know. Uh, how do you make a political statement anymore, really? Well, I'm a farmer. I, I know how I make a political statement this year. I plant a broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like broccoli either. <laughs> but I'm planting lots of broccoli, spreading the word all around the little village of Mount Peter, Tennessee. May come for broccoli. Bring your pickup. There's <laughs> plenty of it here. But it's difficult to make any kind of political statement. It's, uh, I find that it's, I was able to make one not long ago. Some of you, and it always happens, people ask me, uh, do you need that cane? Well, if I didn't need it, I wouldn't have it. <laughs> just meet some need that I have. Uh, I'll get Freud. <laughs> Not long ago, I was coming from somewhere, and I was a little out of sorts. And, um, you know, I, I'm always uh, somewhat peeved by the security system, which doesn't really do any good. Now, I'm not a skyjack, and I'd be terrified if somebody said we're going somewhere other than where we're supposed to be going. Uh, but I don't think that it really works. I know that I could get on a flight arm anytime I'm ready. I'm not going to tell you how I can do it, but I know it can be done. But anyway, they, uh, it seems a terrible invasion of privacy to open my little bag and see whatever it is that's in there, you know. 
And then I walked through the upright and with my cane. Now, if I had a gun or a sword concealed in this walking cane, which happens to be made out of an old piece of barn wood, piece of cherry wood, which a friend of mine, who was what we would call illiterate, tore down 50 years ago and discovered that the timbers were made out of cherry, and he could, he knew something about aesthetics. He knew what was pretty and what some bottom line stuff. And he put it aside when he was old, he made, he made uh, beautiful sculpture out of it, but that's not the point. Uh, but I walked through this upright, and if there, if my friend had placed a sword or a gun in here, that would sound off. Or so they tell me. Uh, because if I have my too many keys in my pocket, or too much money, which is unlikely, uh, it would set it off. But I walked through those uprights. And then, not always, but about half the time, this fellow who has great authority vested in him now, he has a badge and, and sometimes a gun, and he said, now, go and put your cane back on that roller where you have to put your bags to go through there. So I don't, I think it was in Dallas, coming back from somewhere, I was tired of all that foolishness anyway. Uh, by the way, if you should have, my voice is not, uh, too, too strong, and if you should have uh, difficulty hearing me in the course of my remarks, if you would indicate, assuming that you still have any desire to do so, <laughs> I will try to accommodate you if you would let me know. Um, but the fella, I walked through my cane and, and put my bag on the roller, and I got to the other end, which is the long roller in this case, and he said, Now go back and put your cane on the roller. I said, Okay. So I walked back there, put my cane on the roller, and then continued to stand back there. And he kept motioning, he was on the other end, and he said, come on down here and get your cane. I said, no, 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 no. I, I have uh, done what you have asked me to do. Now, would you bring the cane back <laughs> He said, can you walk without the cane? I said, wait a minute, now, now, now. I paid someone else to pass on the state of my health. That's not your job. <laughs> you just bring the cane back. Of course, by then, people were backed up behind me. <laughs> and uh, missed their airplane. And he stood there, and I saw he wasn't going to get him. So I said, all right, I'll come get the cane. So I got out on my hands and <laughs>
that we can be subversive, that we can question the status quo. Now, I think the cartoonists uh, are on to something. They are able to do this, I think, better than those of us who deal with, with uh, words. I remember a, a cartoon of uh, Marvette, uh, Marvette, back during the uh, uh, canal discussion, you know, the Panama Canal discussion. He had uh, these three characters here talking, and the then president uh, Reagan says, if, if we give up the canal, we give up the rights to use it, which seems like a reasonable statement. And then uh, the next fellow, Senator Strom Thurmond says, and our ships will be faced to go all the way around South America. And then <coughs> Senator Helms says, and of course, that increases the chances of sailing off the edge of the earth. <laughs> national leaders in this serious discussion probably influenced more people than any biography of, uh, that any university press might publish of Senator Jesse Helm and the Panama Canal debates. I understand there's one who works, or perhaps already finished. And Con Paul Conrad, who happens to be one of my favorite cartoons from, cartoonists from the Los Angeles, I think probably reach more people with what I call, and all of these, I like to kind of collect these things, and when I see what I like, if I don't know the cartoonist, I wrote a write to him, and I don't know Paul Conrad, but I did write and tell him that I particularly like that cartoon, so he sent me the original, it's hanging in my log cabin office down in Tennessee, if you ever come down and show it, it's what I call is a Cartesian cartoon which showing a fetus in the womb, a tiny little fetus, and in the first bubble it says, I think, the second one, therefore, there we go, I am, and the last one, I hope. Big <laughs> <laughs> cards. Or or Mike Peters. Might see here is from the Dayton Daily News uh, addressing the nuclear controversy with another one of the cartoons I have hanging in my office, which I particularly like. He uh, has a drawing of two women talking beside a sign which points, the sign says nuclear reactor, point, nuclear reactor station. And one of the women is holding this little 10-year-old boy by the hand, and the other woman says in the caption, he's grown a foot since I saw him last. And here's a little foot. Blank on foot, straight out of his Or Jules Piper, uh, showing a black man standing with the chaplain and warden. Around his neck. 
Nothing personal, Sam, it's a deterrent. <laughs> what does it deter the black prisoner as? It deters you from committing any more homicides. <laughs> Would it deter me if I was white? Don't confuse justice with racism, Sam. Would it deter me if I was rich? Don't confuse justice with anti-Americanism, Sam. Would it deter me if I wasn't black and poor and could afford a good lawyer? I don't know where you've got all those weird ideas, Sam. How many white middle-class murderers you heard of on death row, Gordon? And the warden says, drop. And then he says, so goes another enemy of free enterprise. And he's followed closely by a pious little priest reading from scripture. Uh, now, a number of people in the South, and I happen to be among them, work uh, passionately against the death penalty, but I doubt if all of us combined can ever be, can make the case quite so succinctly or convincingly as just this image. Subversive notions, to be sure, the warden was right. What he was saying was subversive. And we march about these things and speak and uh, lobby, but uh, the cartoonists somehow come along as another one of them did about talking about women preach. You know, I don't know about the New York denomination, but in my Holy Mother Church, the Southern Baptist they decided some years ago that since uh, man was first in creation and woman was first in the eventing fall, that kind of got a cute ring to it. Uh, only men should be ordained. Now, the only problem with that, it seems to me, is that uh, if women, if it is true that they were first in the fall in the Garden of Eden, and they discovered sin first, they've been at it longer, and thus are probably better at identifying it and casting it out. <laughs> and so maybe we should have only women priests. But strange as it might seem to you, or those who make these decisions, in the Southern Baptist Convention Church uh, didn't ask me about that uh, legislation, but I told a friend of mine about it, and he had this cartoon, which is here, this little bearded fellow, you know, sitting there writing this memo, and the memo was titled, To Apostle Paul, from the Gizmo of Macedonia. <laughs> Subject, women priest. It says, Dear Paul, hang tough on this female issue. <laughs> After all, none of Christ's apostles are women. Also, only Jews should be priests because no apostles are Gentiles. Furthermore, only short, bearded people. <laughs> Your own. <laughs> uh, 
writers uh, have, I think, uh, uh, captured this this uh, spirit of subversion. And certainly, I am not. This is not a how-to lecture on subverting the steeples or the academy or anything else. I can only, at best, speak in the spirit of this subject. And it seems to me that some of the songwriters, being from Nashville, I, of course, would uh, have in mind, particularly some of the country songwriters, who have caught this. And I know uh, quite a number of them, and I sit down and try to talk to them about some of this, and they don't seem to know what I'm talking about, but it's in their bones and their genes. Merle Haggard, who probably would not be eligible to be president of this college, <laughs> <laughs> or even to teach sociology. <laughs> but he wrote and sang this song called Mama's Hungry Eyes, addressing the problem of poverty, <coughs> family that grew up in a, in a migrant labor camp, and the, the hunger he saw in the eyes of his mother, who wanted only wanted things she really needed broken heart as father and so or Tom T. Hall singing of, of aesthetics in his song Watermelon Wine or a war in his song called Mama Baker Pie, Daddy Kill a Chicken about the Vietnam War and this boy coming home with a bottle hidden underneath the blanket over his two bad legs and he knows when he gets home his mama We'll be crying, daddy's gonna say, son, did they treat you good? And he says, my uncle, well, he'll be drunk. And he'll say, boy, they do some real great things with wood. Mama, bake a pie, daddy, kill a chicken. Your boy's coming home, 11.35, Wednesday night. His girlfriend has written to say goodbye. She couldn't wait, lots of love. But he loves her and knows this bottle won't get her off his mind. <coughs> He sees in the paper where they say that war was just a waste of time. Or Cheryl Millette writing of dodgers and deserters on their way to Canada in his song, I Wonder If Canada Is Cold. All of these songs of ethics, songs of subversion, uh, songs about change, social change, and all coming out of a thorough Christian idea. Now, as a something of a wordsmith, uh, I must confess that I fear that we have not been as successful as the songwriters in capturing the essence of, uh, of trying to affect social change, I assume that that's what any kind of subversion is all about, that when we write, we're trying to say something, we're trying to change people's minds, even for an instant, even if it's nothing but pornography. We have something that we're trying to say. Uh, now, of course, it becomes a little more difficult, I think, when we're talking about literature. But what, what is literature? Is, is literature simply good books? And how good does a book have to be to qualify 
as literature and who decides uh, how long does it take a good book to become literature and is it dependent on the critics my god I hope not uh, and of course also what is what is Christianity that covers a lot of territory from three criminals hanging on crosses outside the city of Jerusalem, who Karl Barth said formed the first Christian community, from there to Pat Robertson and Jerry Powell. And certainly we would all agree that Falwell and Robertson are trying to affect social change. But does that make their words really subversive. Now a book in and of itself does not, cannot affect social change. The words may influence people, may inspire them, even compel them to various kinds of actions, but just the words on a piece of paper alone are not going to do it. And one of the earliest uh, bits of written words which went on to become important literature, I think, in anybody's a book and effect social change was when Moses sat down with Pharaoh and said, we've got to have some change. Let, let the people, let my people go. But behind the literature was an authority. So when we're talking about subversion, we must always be careful. What is the authority? Who's made you the trumpet or the, or the dissembler or whatever? It was not the words, but what prompted the words. It was not art for art's sake. It was words growing out of an experience, this Moses. Moses had a story to tell. He had something to say, something to write about. Happens, it was autobiographical. Truth is, everything who writes autobiographical. I've come in the room and say to you, good morning. That says something about me. It says I speak the English language. And it might, to some of you who, who are not as, as good at the language as others, it might suggest to you that I come from a part of the country known as the South. It's not likely that you would suspect that, but you might. But with most, it was a strange, spooky kind of experience. Now, you all know this story. He worked for his dad-in-law and was out moving sheep from one uh, side of the passage to another, and he saw a bush on fire. <coughs> Nothing particularly unusual about that in this arid countryside where they had a lot of fox hunters, thought it might have been a campfire, hunters out there waiting for the hound. And, uh, but then he saw that it, that it was not a campfire, but it was a bush on fire. Well, nothing particularly unusual about that. This dry country, some little listed kid might have thumped a bone over there, you know. Happened. Could have happened that way. I don't say it did, but it could have. But he, it was a, kind of a bizarre thing to him. And, and not only that, the bush began to talk to him. And Moses 
life up to that point hasn't been exactly cruising down the river on a Sunday afternoon, but he was mildly daunted by a talking bush on <laughs> Especially when the boy said, now Moses, old buddy, we've got to make some changes in society. Things aren't right. You've got to do something. My folks over in Egypt are slaves, they're being brutalized, tortured, and we're going to do something about it. I want you to go over there now. I want you to go and do and, and get them out of there. So Moses, I'm sure, just sitting there, you know, standing there, laughing and stuff. And but then he said, but wait a minute. What if they what if they ask me who sent me? Who, who told me to tell them all these things? Who, who do I say sent me? What is my authority? And the bush on fire said the most ridiculous, outrageous, absolutely nonsensical thing. Just tell them I am ascension. And Moses, even more bewildered, I'm sure, threw his hands in the air and said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Holy Moses. <laughs> what else? I, I don't know exactly. But I do suspect that he said, Now look, Mr. Bush. <laughs> send me to Meningers and shoot me full of Thorazine and I've got problems enough I have to go for a speech therapy now. And so you're kidding. And being an old fox hunter, he, he said, and familiar with the vernacular, said, no, no now, Mr. I am, whoever you are, it's, it's time to pee on the fire and call it all. I can't tell them I am. Sent me. No, no, no. The voice said, just tell them, I am who I am, sent you. Subversion by the absurd, the utter ridiculous. I am. Come on. But thus began changes which continue to unfold to this very day. And I haven't heard the news, but this morning's news, we were praying for hostages in that part of the world to be uh, released. Such a dole saying we made some mistakes about where the Jewish capital city should be. Things change that still affect us. Because as Pope Pius XI said, we're, we're all spiritual Semites, though in our sect called Christianity, we tend to forget from time to time that seven or eight million of our Semitic brothers and sisters were made into soap and lampshades. But the literature was there. And no literature is so lust after change, whether for good or evil, as religious literature, because of who the authority is. 
something so mysterious and awesome as to identify itself as I am. Now, no book of literature has ever influenced the literature that followed as much as what began when Moses began this process of negotiation of Pharaoh. Much of it vile literature. Much of it highly subversive. But all of it directing at affecting what goes on within the community. Not the community of believers, not our co-religionists, but in the community of humanity. Of course, the stories in the Bible are numerous. So far, I don't think any of us have tried to equal. Someone was telling me about a young scholar when this college, I hope, isn't in trouble, but he was giving his first address in front of his, the chair of his department and president, and he said, as on one occasion Jesus said, with whom I'm inclined to agree, <laughs> whether we agree with the stories of the Bible or not, they, they are there and they are numerous. We think of this little fellow named David. Just a little fellow. Played for the Ephrathite Peewee League. He had seven big brothers. Who played pro professionally for the Israelite Lions. And when the Israelite Lions had a big game against the Philistine Bears with a big defensive tackle named Goliath, I think they called him the Fridge, <laughs> it was this little peewee. Who, who talked the coach and letting him in this game. He'd never been in a game like that before. Played down with the little girls. He, like me, played basketball against Roy Anderson. <laughs> uh, but he talked the coach and letting him into the game and said that only he would, would hit the free. What he did, he invoked the same I am by saying, I have come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, which you have defied. The Lord will put you into my power this day. I'll kill you. Pretty permanent word. And cut your head off and leave your carcass and the carcasses of the Philistines to the birds and the wild beasts. All the world shall know that there is a God. The literature developed and grew, was passed on, added to it was taught in the manner that I learned down in a little rural Baptist church called East Fork Baptist Church in South Mississippi. <coughs> Mississippi, when I was growing up, was not exactly notorious for its social radicalism. <laughs> but I learned from these stories a lot of important lessons. They came in strange and subversive ways. We were galvanized by the story of Jael and Sisera in the book of Judges. We had a wonderful old Sunday school teacher called Aunt Donnie. 
she wasn't anybody's hand. I know her, but she was everybody's hand. And we lived down close to the Louisiana line, close to the Bayou country, and Aunt Don had bought J.L. was a Cajun. Never knew exactly. Very colorful. Fine imagination. And she told us that J.L. was a cheerleader for the raging Cajuns down in what used to be called Southwestern Louisiana Institute. Latin. And you remember the story, Deborah had sent Bayrak out to fight the Canaanites, heavily outnumbered. But Bayrak had put them to rout, and Sisera, the commanding officer of the Canaanite forces, did what a lot of head officers do. He got his pipe and his brave captain said, I shall return. He bailed out. Now, ain't Donnie, for some reason unknown to us at the time, suspected that Sisera somehow was acquainted with J.L. Already, in fact, she found a little love letter in his pocket and told us about it. Told us she found it there. But in any case, he made his way to her tent. And Aunt Tony was skipping Chris around the Sunday school room. Actually, in the room we, our church house was just one big room. We had clothes wire on the ceiling and muslin curtains. Close them all, make many rooms out of this one big room. I see some of you smile a little bit. You're familiar with church houses like that. So if you got bored of what's going on in Europe, so it's like here, right? Two or three others across the way there. But we're seldom bored with, with Aunt Tony uh, as our Sunday school teacher because uh, she would press around and roll her eyes and turn around and shake her geriatric booty and, and talk in her famed Cajun accent, hey big boy, come on over to my tent dog. <laughs> I want to give you something like you ain't never had before. <laughs> well, General Cicero, trusty old army man that he was, uh, thought he'd already had everything he could catch, so leprosy perhaps, but he went on in the tent, and he said, now, now, baby, uh, I'm pretty worst out right now, but I tell you what, let me take a nap and rest up a little, and then and we'll see. <laughs> well, that was all right for jail because uh, her agenda was not what Jim thought it was. And uh, anyway, she had a headache, so <laughs> even soon to have she covered him up with an old army blanket she had bought at the army circus store and stuffed one of her husband's old t-shirts under his head. One that said, Caesar's Palace, tomorrow. See Mount Sinai. And rubbed his back and gave him a drink of buttermilk and told him to get some rest. And she would wait just outside the tent and tell anyone who inquired that he wasn't there. Now you go night and night, baby. And highly subversive, you know. When he started snoring, J.L. took a ball peen hammer and a long tent peg and drove it through his eardrums. Pretty graphic. And the Holy Bible tells us that his brains oozed out of the ground. His arms and legs twitched and spasmed. And he died as well he might. <laughs> cheerleader that nailed that over to the floor in the name of the Lord. <laughs>
all night we would toss and turn with the image of that big journal lying there with a number eight of spike driven through its sweet ribs. Read that beautiful song of Deborah coming immediately after for the leaders, the leaders of Israel, for the people who answer the call, bless ye the Lord. Blessed of all above women be jail. Blessed above all women in the tents. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She offered him curds and a bowl fit for a chieftain. That's buttermilk. She stretched out her hand for the tent peg, her right hand, a hammer of the weary. With the hammer, she struck Cicero. She crushed his head. She struck, and his brains zipped out. At her feet, he sank down and fell where he lay. At her feet, he sank down and fell where he sank down. There he fell, done to death. Now, there was no question in anyone's mind where our sympathies lay. Yet we could sense kind of motherly empathy as Aunt Donnie continued, a kind of worried look on her face. The mother of Cicero peered through the lattice. Through the window she peered and shrilly cried, Why are his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots so long delayed? Well, we knew the answer. But we wouldn't tell. We wouldn't say, I know I don't. Because J.L. drove a tip peg through his eardrum. You see, we knew that Aunt Donnie had lost a son in the First World War, and she knew the feeling of the general's mother, wrong though he might have been. But she went on, so perish all thine enemies, O Lord, but let all who love thee be like the sun rising in strength. Now the point here is that the literature that has so influenced us all is literature rooted in great violence and ambivalence and all kinds of subversion. So there's nothing new about it. talking about writing as subversion, as vocation, as subversion. The beautiful song of Deborah was inspired by a tent peg through an army general's head. The little David who would leave the fridge with the last spasms of life spurting blood all over the East Fork Baptist Church floor was also the sweet singer of Israel, the original country picker, I maintain, writer of beautiful country love songs and songs of praise and victory and grace. Now certainly I would hope that our subversion will not be quite so decisive as J.L.'s, but you get the point. But yet we must be ever careful <coughs> that our subversion, if it is in the name of this social movement or that social movement, if I haven't been involved in one or another all of my adult life, but I've always been suspicious of it. I've never trusted any of it, and still don't. So when we talk about writing as subversion, it must be in the, the presentation of a, of a kind of aura, of a, of a mood, of an attitude. It's not that we know the answer, the political answers to this question or that. God knows I don't. But what we write about is not the authority out of which we write, the 
the book of Exodus, not even the novel or film version, is not I am. So what we write is not the authority. It may be the what we write out, out of, is the spirit out of which we come. But we don't have the final word. I am is I am. My books are not I am. And if our writings and if our writers do not reflect this, if they do not reflect, if they are not writing out of the mystery and awe of I am, they are blasphemous. Now the story of J.O. and Cicero can be used by warmongers or they can be used by militant feminists. One may be evil, the other may be good. But neither one is I am. I am is I am. Augustine, the city of God, is certainly an important piece of literature to us. But in that great book, incidentally, the man who introduced me tonight named one of my novels, The Glad River, that happens, comes from a verse in the Psalms, precisely where Augustine got his title for his book, which I thought put me in pretty good company. <laughs> but in that great book, among other things, he said, he to whom authority is delegated is but the sword in the hand of he who uses it, and is not himself responsible for the death he deals. Now, of course, as others have said, on that basis, I should have been declared innocent. And would you agree that essentially Augustine lays the foundation for the Lutheran position, that there is an earthly authority and we shouldn't mess with it very much? And we have now to ask whether Lutheranism paved the way for Hitler's jihad. All that to say, be careful when you try to affect social change. And yet, we must try. Not on the basis of certainty. Not on the basis of conduct. Not on the basis of creed. Or even belief. But on the basis of faith. And faith is not in So when we, with word or act, subvert, it can never be because of something we believe. It can only be in this aura of faith. And again, faith is not belief. Any words that come out of belief, of certainty, is tractarian and not literature. Now, this would seem to be a contradiction. Because belief is passive and faith is active. And yet it seems to me that the only definition of faith one can find in the New Testament, the one in Hebrews, makes the point stand. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Creeds and doctrines are based on belief, not on faith. And to write in defense of creed and doctrine of theology is tractarian and is never literature. <clears throat> to write in faith is to try to reflect the way to be in our day followers 
of the way and leads to discipleship. Christ, who had no methods people could adopt and put to definite use, no clearly formulated conditions upon which one could enter the kingdom of which he spoke, never demanded of the people who wished to follow him that they must first know this or that, the nature of the Trinity, the plan of salvation. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is heresy. Because the role and duty of these people, institutional church, is to formulate, teach, and defend by force necessary, creed, doctrine, theology. And in my judgment, though I have always reserved the right to be wrong about anything, including that statement, but in my judgment, the role, the call, the vocation of the writer is to subvert the speakers or some institution. And all institutions are inherently evil because all institutions are after my soul. And my soul belongs not to creed, not to doctrine, not to theology, but to I am who I am. Edith Hamilton, a woman I had known only for her uh, fine work and antiquities, mythology. I ran across a book she wrote late in her life, quite by accident, looked for something else. To me, it's one of the most important, and maybe it's just because I was not familiar with it, uh, a little-known book called Witness to the Truth, 40 years ago. She said the great church of Christ came into being by ignoring the life of Christ. I want you to listen to her words. And I wouldn't say that earlier because those were my words. But these are not my words. I think they're important. The fathers of the church were good men, often saintly men, sometimes men who cared enough for Christ to die for him, but they did not trust him. They could not trust the safety of his church to his way of doing things. So they set out to make the church safe in their own way. Creeds and theologists protected it from individual vagaries. Riches and power protected it against outside attacks. So the church was safe. But one thing is ardent builders and defenders fail to see. Nothing that lives can be safe. Life means danger. And the more the church was hedged about with confessions of faith and defended by the mighty of the earth, the feebler its life grew. Until today, it is hardly distinguishable from any other club. The woman spoke an important truth, I think, particularly for writers certainly writers of literature. The steeples, as I call the structures of the institution of the church, have their own scribes. They train them well, and they pay them well to defend the creeds, and doctrines, and theologies, and confessions. No one pays the writer well. So he or she is in the shaky but enviable position of being free. She or he can be subversive, 
as Edith Hamilton, God knows was the person. If you caught the impact of what she was saying, because what she was saying was that the institutional church from the outset was a compound to keep us distance from radical discipleship. And of course, that's a redundancy because all discipleship is radical. Edith Hamilton was subversive because she was talking not about a technological concentration camp, but she was saying that creeds and theologies and doctrine puts us in theological concentration camps which keep us from being followers of the way in the spirit of I am who I am. So, we as writers at least have that. We are free. We won't get paid much for it, or I haven't. And by what authority do we subvert the structures? By the authority of I am who I am, not creed, not doctrine, not theology. And yes, like the church fathers, we as writers do love Jesus. But unlike the church fathers, if we are to reflect his story of right, we must also trust him because we are not called to build anything. And that trust leads to freedom a freedom which might lead to a cross. Now, if I may, I'd like to leave you with a few words which probably will not sound subversive to you in this uh, arena today. Some words I wrote some time ago, but which have just recently been published from a little book called Covenant, which is just a collection of soliloquies of various people I've run into, some of them embellished, some of them didn't know much the way it happened, some of them I made up and beginning to end. But as with all words, they require a visual image in your mind. And so if the visual image in your mind right now could be, and this uh, soliloquy was written back in the 60s where to go into the basement states of the South and say, if you believe in racial segregation, you're going straight to hell. Well, that wasn't exactly designed for longevity. <laughs> but subversion. So you could talk about and recite about Miss Velma Westbury. And if you can have the visual image of this handsome black woman, well beyond middle years, standing in a cemetery in the South, of course, if I know this nation we call America, it could happen in any part of this country, standing in the cemetery in the rain, with the rain falling on her nappy peppercorn hair, 
mixing with tears in the crevices of her face and dropping on her once light plump breast now wilted and sagging with age. Miss Velma Westbor is thinking, I wonder if she knows now. Knows that I wasn't just her cook. I did cook for her all right. For going on 25 years, I cooked for her. And before that, I fed her young. From my own breast, I fed her. Suckle that Jesus meant for my own babies. She'd tell me I was doing it just to help her wean them, but I know she's being plumb low down. She'd tell them babies titty was nasty, I mean, when she got tired of feeding them herself. Even when they wasn't nowhere ready to be weaned. They wasn't ready for no solid food. The babies know it, she knowed it too. But she'd send for me and tell them babies if they wanted to nurse, it'd have to be from some old dirty black titty. The babies didn't know the difference between a white bosom and a black bosom. They'd hang on to my nipples like leeches and cry their little eyes out when I left them. I bathed them, washed all their clothes, ironed them combed their little cotton heads and got them ready for school. And when he was grown, I helped every one of them girls get married. Curled their hair, fixed their ruffles. And it was me that told them what to do and what not to do on their wedding night. And they never forgot it. Not a one of them ever forgot it. One of them moved off to California. Another one to Louisville, one of the big places up north. Other one just over in the next county. But it didn't matter where they was, whether they're close or far. They always stopped to see me when they come home, most of the time, before they got to her house. But that ain't the most I've done for her. I loved her. But she almost took that away from me one time. Almost took it away. Every time I'd do something that rubbed her the wrong way, she'd rail out at me like some old wet setting in. My Claude had a note she talked to me that way in the word of God. He'd have burned her house down, never let me go back. But I kept it to myself, always just kept it to myself. This one morning I'd made the coffee and taken it to her bed like I always done. And she'd come dragging in the kitchen in her gown tail it after nine o'clock, way past time for me to be gone, yelling for a breakfast. I put it down in front of her and she took the fried egg in her hand and slammed it at me hard as she could, said the egg was cold. That egg wasn't cold. But I'd just taken it off when she'd come in. It missed me, but it landed on the stove burner I'd left on in case she wanted something else. It commenced to sizzle and smoke, the yolk running all down around that red hot coil and there was no way I could keep it from stinking up the whole house. She kept yelling at me, telling me to do something. Wasn't nothing I could do but stand there and wait for the burner cool off so I could get it off and clean it up. But I never was no hand to talk back to her, never did sass her, no matter what she said, just kept it to myself. But something other got into me that day, I reckon the old devil himself. I took my apron off and hung it where I always did and told her I didn't know what to do. But she did, she could do it herself. She followed me out the door just to holler and scream, you impotent wretch, you wait till I tell Calvin, he knows how to take care of smart etiquette niggers. Calvin was her youngest boy, and he always paid me off. 
I went straight to his house, told him I couldn't take it no more, told him I wouldn't be back. He almost cried while he's counting on my pay that Calvin always was a sweet white child. His little wife right there beside him. She told me that she and Calvin didn't blame me either. They didn't know how I put up with so much for so long. The next morning I was right back. I was already tired because I hadn't slept a wink all night, but I was back. I stayed awake all night talking to my Jesus. He told me he knew she was mean all right. Knew she said hurtful things to folks was trying to help her. But he said she was old, couldn't look after herself. By going back, he helped me out as he could. Then he said something I won't ever forget. He said if we just love the folks as he's in love, that really wasn't no love at all. He said if you love one, you have to love them all. Just about the time the sun was coming up, me laying there without a week of sleep, I seen him plain as day. He was sitting there on the side of my bed, clawed just the snow on the other side. My Jesus he put his hand on my shoulder when I looked up at him. He gave me this big wink and said, Bella, call my name. He said, Bella, there's one thing I learned 2,000 years ago. Don't let me white folks make trash out of it. I started getting up, and when I did, he gave me another wink and shrugged his big old pretty shoulders. And when I looked around, he was gone. And now here I am, standing in the rain, back behind a crowd in this cold Bilbo graveyard, bawling with the rest of them while they lay her down. All whilst the preacher was talking. I kept looking around for my Jesus to wink at me again, but it never did. We give thanks for the memory of Will Campbell and his prophetic words. Rewrite Radio is produced at the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find the center online at ccfw.calvin.edu and on Facebook and Twitter. Learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu and subscribe to Rewrite Radio for more of our over 30 years of festivals. <laughs>